everyone. Welcome to Inside the Chrysalis. Our goal for this podcast is to introduce and discuss psychological concepts in the context of the real world. Today's podcast is one of our roundtables where we gather a group of experts to weigh in on one particular concept and discuss how it impacts them personally. This episode is going to be about survivor's guilt. And this topic wasn't originally on our radar for the season, but in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and in the, the protests in the wake of the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, we really wanted to address this very real phenomenon that a lot of us are experiencing. So my name is Dr. Michelle Quist. I'm a social psychologist and a teaching professor at Penn State. And here with me today, I have my podcast co-creators, affectionately known as the Pod Squad. So let's get the introductions going. We'll start with Dr. Angie Leroy. Angie? Hi, I'm Dr. Angie Leroy. I'm currently a researcher at Rice University, and I study the mind-body connection, and I specialize in social loss or how we grieve different types of losses in our life. Welcome, Angie. And then we also have Dr. Jen Bryan. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. Jennifer Bryan. I am in mental health education at the VA, and I'm an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. All right. And then we have Dr. Chelsea Young. Hi, everyone. I'm an assistant professor at Rowan University, and I'm also a social psychologist, and I research alcohol interventions for college students. Welcome, Chelsea. Okay, welcome, everybody. So we are all here again today to talk about survivor's guilt. First, I think we'll start off with Angie, if you wouldn't mind, would you just give us a short introduction to what survivor's guilt is and uh, kind of where it came from? Sure, Michelle. So I want to preface this discussion with saying that we're going to be talking about survivor's guilt firstly in this episode in in the context of what we traditionally think of as the survivor's guilt construct or concept in psychological science and psychological research. So I'm going to talk to you about how it's been defined in psychology so far in the scientific literature and um, based on how it's been most systematically studied. But then later, we're going to put our own spin on it, being social psychologists and kind of broaden this concept into loss in general. So as a grief researcher, I think of survivor's guilt as a type of grief, or sometimes it can even be a symptom of grief. And in a nutshell, survivor's guilt occurs when a person has survived some type of life-threatening situation while others did not. And in the short term, feeling this sense of survivor's guilt can be a way of working through complex emotions, particularly after a traumatic event's been experienced. And it's important for us to emphasize, like we do with a lot of psychological phenomenons we talk about in this podcast, that in the short term, this survivor's guilt, this feeling of survivor's guilt can actually be adaptive because it can help us work through some complex emotions associated with grieving. But what becomes unhealthy is if it isn't dealt with or becomes overwhelming or potentially obsessive for people. Okay. I want to interject real quick. Can you go ahead and just explain to people what you mean by a traumatic event? That's a great question, Michelle. I'm glad you asked that because I think we hear that term thrown around a lot. Um, So there's lots of different definitions of trauma. What I mean here about trauma in general is a traumatic event we can think of as any distressing event that feels immediately and overwhelmingly terrifying when it happens. In the case of survivor's guilt, we typically think of a traumatic event, quote unquote, as an event that also resulted in a death or serious injury of someone else. Is that, is that helpful? Yes. So um, I just want to recap something. So you said at the beginning that it can be a way of working through complex emotions after a traumatic event, and it can be adaptive or healthy if because it helps us process those emotions. Um, but if it isn't dealt with, it, 
it can become overwhelming or obsessive and that's when it can get unhealthy, but it, it can be a way of processing. So when we're talking about these overwhelmingly terrifying, to me, I see this something that gives us emotions that are too big that we can't deal with them. And so then we have to kind of fight our way through. And so survivor's guilt is one of those tools we have to fight our way through sometimes. Would you, do you think that's fair? Yeah. So so in some cases, you know, when something traumatic happens, if we are faced with this big energetic uh, pulse in our environment of some, of some kind, this distressing event, that's immediately and overwhelmingly terrifying. We don't feel like we have the resources to cope with it in the moment. And our brain gets those signals too. And so our brains do all kinds of cartwheels and backflips to try to help us process what's happened after the fact. And so survivor's guilt can kind of be a, just a manifestation of that kind of like your brain trying to make sense of things. So in that way, it can be productive if we are able to come out on the other side of it and make sense of that survivor's guilt, which I think we'll talk more about later on. But unfortunately, because survivor's guilt causes people a lot of pain, a lot of prolonged pain and prolonged grief in some cases, it's oftentimes studied in psychology in more severe cases of trauma that's led to some type of prolonged grief. And so in those cases, it's unfortunately become unhealthy and no longer is a positive coping mechanism. To give some historical context for our listeners, survivor's guilt was first documented after the Holocaust, when those who survived concentration camps felt guilty that they had lived through the horror while others had perished. And since then, though, we've in science, we've found that survivor's guilt is most is actually more commonly occurring than was previously thought. And I'll give you some more details about that in a minute. Now, according to Nancy Sherman, and she is a PhD researcher who has done a lot of work about survivor's guilt, particularly among people in the military. She says that survivor's guilt begins with an endless loop of thoughts that you could have or should have done something in that traumatic situation where someone ended up having to lose their life, though you may have actually done nothing wrong or nothing to to have contributed to their death. So these thoughts can persist regardless of whether you're actually at fault or not, or like these thoughts are true or not. And importantly, I wanted to note that if you hear someone else expressing their survivor's guilt and you're not the one that experienced the traumatic event where someone else um, got hurt or passed away, you might think, well, this seems totally irrational. You know, there's, of course, that person's not at fault. There's nothing they could have done for that person's uh, death. But, the, you know, you might be feeling that, but the person who is grieving may not feel that way. So we have to remember that these thoughts can be irrational, which is sometimes why it's difficult to keep them from persisting and can, you know, creating like a vicious cycle for people while they're grieving. Can I interject for a second? Yeah, please, Charles. Uh, so in general, that kind of what if or things that I could have done that might have prevented this outcome I don't want are called counterfactual thoughts in social mm-hmm. psychology. So that's another way of thinking about, man, if only I had done this thing. So we see evidence of that with silver medalists and how they're the least happy on the Olympic platform because the gold medalist is thinking, wow, I won. And the bronze medalist is thinking, oh my gosh, I almost didn't get on the platform at all. And the silver medalist is thinking, if only I had stuck the landing, I would have gotten gold. So that's kind of what we're talking about here, these counterfactual thoughts. Yeah, I I would suggest any listener, if that resonates with you, 
look up counterfactual thinking because it actually, it's it's not really the scope of what we're talking about here, but counterfactual thinking plays into a lot of the interactions that we have with people and uh, with history and, and all of this stuff. So definitely, if, if you're interested in, in this, just Google counterfactual thinking and read some, some pop psych articles about it because it's really interesting. And I'm glad Chelsea mentioned that term because Nancy Sherman does use that term and she, when she talks about that endless loop of counterfactual thinking. And you can see how that could be really toxic when you think about the definition of counterfactual thinking itself. Yeah. I wonder if it's a, a way of trying to assert control. If you have this, this overwhelming sense of this thing happened and I can't make sense out of it, mm-hmm. we like to think that we have control over events. And so one way of dealing with the emotion is so that we can protect ourselves from going through it again is to think of how we could have or should have controlled it. Yes. And a lot of that comes in the form of asking ourselves questions, right? Because that's our brain makes sense of things through, you know, through our cognitive thought processes, but also through our language, even if it's kind of like our internal language, like are those internal thoughts. So it's not uncommon for survivors of different type of traumatic events to think they could have done something to prevent that tragedy from happening and ask themselves things like, why wasn't it me? Why did I survive? And this other person didn't, I didn't deserve to live more than they did, you know, things like that. So absolutely. So uh, one thing I also wanted to mention is that just because someone's been through a traumatic experience, even if it's resulted in the death or injury of a loved one or someone in there, it doesn't have to be a loved one, but someone in their environment doesn't actually necessarily mean that they are going to automatically experience survivor's guilt. Not everyone experiences this, that's the good news, but of those who do experience it, the severity tends to vary from person to person and also depends on the situation. So it depends on the traumatic event, depends on different risk factors that individual might have going into the traumatic event. And some people will work quickly through feeling these uh, feelings of guilt, while others will find themselves really bogged down by feeling survivor's guilt. And in the research about survivor's guilt, there, I found that there were a couple themes that show up across the scientific literature. So one is what we've kind of talked about so far, just generally guilt about surviving. So the person's kind of questioning the fairness of the world. Why did I survive and other people didn't? There's also this theme of feeling guilty over what you should or could have done. And so this is the type of survivor's guilt that really plagues people who feel like they didn't do enough to help in a situation or to stop events from unfolding. So there might be a sense that they should have known this was going to happen or they should have tried harder to prevent it or that they had some signs that this was going to happen and they didn't listen to those signs. Another theme is guilt over what they actually might have done. So rather than what they didn't do, what they might have actually done. So some may feel guilty about actual um, actions that they took. So... This could be things like pushing others out of the way while fleeing an active shooter or killing someone in a truck driving accident. Things that they feel like they actively might have contributed to to kind of save themselves in some cases. And then lastly, one other theme that I I saw was this guilt that someone might have died for you or for us in some way. And so this is the, this would be in a context of worse if someone actually sheltered the individual from harm or might've felt like they gave their life for them in some way and saved them by doing whatever it was that they did that uh, occurred in the traumatic incident. So I know that's a lot. This is a a heavy topic, but I think this actually resonates with a lot of people. Um, So before we kind of move on to some of the discussion, I want to just quickly 
talk about what some common symptoms are. And when I say symptoms, I should mention that I was reading that survivor's guilt was actually once considered a diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So that's we call it the DSM in psychology. It's what um, mental health practitioners will use to actually diagnose people. Um, but it's since been removed and it's now considered a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, with that said, that doesn't mean, once again, that if someone's feeling survivor's guilt that they have PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But I just wanted to make that point because it goes to show how it tends to go hand in hand with traumatic events or highly stressful events that we feel like or, you know, overwhelmingly terrifying. So some symptoms that might occur, and again, remember symptoms are just kind of potential manifestations of survivor's guilt. I feel like sometimes this word symptoms gets thrown around as this bad thing. If you have symptoms, it means you're sick. No, these are just kind of signs that you might be experiencing this. So from first person to person, of course, these symptoms will vary, but the most common are flashbacks of the traumatic event, feeling irritability in some way, Difficulty sleeping, lack of motivation, feeling disconnected or numb, intense fear, physical pain. So I study the mind-body connection. I know a lot about this from the scientific literature and also from personal experience, to be honest, how things that are going on emotionally can manifest physically. So in the form for some people, for example, it's headaches, stomach aches, heart palpitations, etc. Other symptoms include depression and, and or anxiety. And another symptom, it can even be, um, these symptoms can even be as serious as things like suicidal thoughts or thoughts of ending your life. So you can see how, especially in cases where, you know, we might have these more mild cases of survivor's guilt where we feel survivor's guilt on some level, but it doesn't become overwhelming or really bog us down. Whereas for other people, particularly if it's co-occurring with, you know, major stress, major trauma, it can result and kind of trickle down into these other facets of our life and manifest in these other symptoms these symptoms can be very debilitating. So I actually see some of these symptoms, they do map onto PTSD, you know, the flashbacks, mm-hmm. the irritability, all those things. We do see a lot of overlap between those symptoms. So it kind of makes sense that they would be along the same diagnostic line. Um, so you had said earlier that it's it's more widespread than we thought. I, I know that the, with the history and psychology, you know, going through psych classes, I have learned about survivor's guilt before, but I always thought about it as something that was associated with super epic things happening. When you go off to war or people with like the building bombings, I know it was a big thing with the Oklahoma City bombing and and things like that, that people experience this survivor's guilt. But it sounds like what you're saying is that it can be more widespread than that. We actually have more people that experience survivor's guilt than just that small, serious group. So how widespread would you say that survivor's guilt actually is? Yeah. So I think it's actually, it's quite widespread, especially if we remember that you, someone can be experiencing a form of survivor's guilt independent potentially of a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis or of other things. Like it could be just an, it's just a natural part of the grieving process for some people. And so it's going to happen more often than it's probably documented at this point. And it's interesting that you mentioned like major, like, like for example, like the, the Oklahoma city bombings or going to war. And the reason why you probably remember that is because from your site classes is because that's where it's been. So reference guilt was kind of traditionally researched in those types of contexts. 
to answer your question about how widespread it is, I'd like to talk a little bit about who's most at risk for it, what different groups are most at risk for it, and then also contextually what types of traumatic or stressful experiences tend do we tend to see people experiencing survivor's guilt afterwards. So survivor's guilt, for example, is more common in children and teenagers and with people who have less developed coping skills. For children and teenagers, that may not come up as a surprise to the psychologists on the call today because we know that these individuals still have developing brains. And so any type of traumatic event can certainly manifest quite differently in even young adults. Guys, remind me, when is the prefrontal cortex fully developed? Is it 23? 25. Yeah, 25, 25 26. 25, yeah, 25, 26. And so, so of course, you know, this, this can certainly be, I don't want to say a stunting in development, but it depends, you know, manifests differently for other people. And depending on where you are developmentally, that can certainly influence how well recover from a stressful experience like that. So here's some situations where survivor's guilt is more common, at least statistically more likely. Again, this doesn't mean that if you've experienced one of these things or you do in the future that you will get the survivor's guilt, but it just makes it more likely. So as Michelle mentioned, after surviving a war, another one is if a child dies before a parent after surviving an accident. So a plane crash, a car wreck, or kind of a freak accident that no one was expecting to happen. Here's a more widespread one. So after surviving cancer or another life-threatening illness, it can also occur when a parent dies from complications of childbirth, particularly if um, this is referring to like if the child end up feeling feels survivor's guilt um, in response to that. After surviving an act of violence, could be after a fellow drug user dies of an overdose, drug users that tend to use together. If a sibling dies, especially in the case of an illness or a freak accident as well, if the other sibling was present. And after receiving an organ transplant is another one. After causing an accident in which others died. So we gave the example earlier of like a drunk driver, or it could be for, you know, causing an accident some other way. And then also one that I think is more common, because you can see that it can cross context, is feeling guilty for not being present to save someone's life or not being present when a loved one dies. Another common one that I think some of us on the call can relate to because of where we've lived geographically is after a natural disaster. And, you know, and especially in the last couple of years, we've seen this influx of that. And so I think, Michelle, based on all of those contexts and, you know, how common some of these things are, like not being present when a loved one dies you know, experiencing some kind of natural disaster among these other ones, that this is actually probably quite widespread and maybe not even completely captured in the literature as to how widespread it is. Absolutely. All right. I really want to dig into that and start talking about it in the context of our lives, but we're going to take a quick break first. So everybody hang tight for just a few seconds and we'll be back in a minute. Okay, so we're back. Um, so the first question I have for everybody is listening to what Angie said, and we've talked a little bit about this already, but did this concept of survivor's guilt resonate with anybody here? 
I gotta say, as Angie was talking, I got goosebumps. I've never thought about it in this way. I have two friends who have died by suicide. And after it happened, I just kept replaying all the conversations in my head that like, what if I had said this? Or what if I had called? I was supposed to be in the town he was in and I didn't call. What if I called and we had plans for that week? Would he still have been here? I never contextualized that as survivor's guilt before. You know, Jen, I had a similar experience. I had a person close to me die by suicide and he wrote me an email beforehand. And I remember reading the email and thinking something's off about that, but I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't call him or or anything. Um, And he died by suicide the next day. And I had this sense of guilt that I should have reached out to him or whatever. And I had never thought of that in terms of survivor's guilt as well. So yeah, it resonated with me in that context as well. So it seems to me, Angie, when we were talking about this uh, survivor's guilt and we're talking about the reasons for thinking about like what Jen and I were just saying about our friends who died by suicide and what we could have done about it, we really, there isn't anything we actually could have done about it. It feels like that guilt is very unwarranted. So is, but then when you were talking about your possible causes, some of those, like, for example, causing an accident does feel warranted that people would feel guilty. So is that an aspect of survivor's guilt? Yeah. So this has been studied a bit in the literature and this theme that comes up is thought of as like rational versus irrational guilt. So in some cases, these feelings of survival, survival guilt might actually be rational. So for example, if like some accident like hits a pedestrian with their car or something, but they actually were the ones in terms of like, if you define it by physics to, you know, um, inflict that injury on that person, they were quote unquote at fault, even though it was an accident. So they weren't really at fault. That wasn't an intentional thing, right? So there's kind of a piece there that can be interpreted as rational guilt and irrational guilt, which gets kind of messy for, it gets even messier, honestly, for our brain to kind of disentangle and make sense of. So survivor's guilt can come in the form of both these rational thoughts and also irrational thoughts. And sometimes they even conflict. Interesting. Okay, so I said at the beginning when I was introducing the episode that we wanted to bring up survivor's guilt because of the context of the times that we're in right now with the pandemic and with the protesters and uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So what might be the impact right now of how might survivor's guilt be presenting itself in people at this moment in time? Oh gosh. So I'm I'm going to start with COVID-19 just because of temporally like timeline wise going back to even earlier this year when the outbreak first started and the economy started crashing and people were losing their jobs. I even felt a sense of survivor's guilt from the fact that I still had a job. So I thought, well why why am I financially and emotionally at least in this way surviving this and other people aren't? And so the point I want to make with that is that although survivor's guilt has been studied in psychology in association with traumatic events that have led to people, you know, passing away or having severe injury, it can, I think, can also apply to loss more broadly. Um, And of course, it can also apply to people who are, you know, unfortunately dying or getting sick of COVID-19. So someone could also have feelings like, well, why did so-and-so get sick and I didn't? Or why did so-and-so pass away from this and, and I didn't? This could have easily happened to me, but we just live 
in different geographic regions where the outbreak was different, you know? And so, and again, you can hear probably both like a lot of irrational pieces there, but they still exist and they're still thoughts that we have and that perpetuate this feeling of survivor skill. I know like my experience with COVID, a lot of times I felt like my distress has come from the guilt of like, I'm actually doing pretty good. But one of my best friends is in New York City and like at a thousand square foot apartment with a husband and a two year old and like she can't get the food delivers that the baby likes and her situation is so much worse than I have it. Or my friends in healthcare, their experience is just so different and hearing that on a daily basis just made me feel terrible for how good I have it. Speaking of healthcare workers too, I just published a paper on, we called it, I think our title was Dying in the Face of COVID-19. I published it with some um, other researchers who study grief. And we talk about in that paper about how we're concerned about healthcare workers having survivor's guilt in particular, because they are seeing that, you know, they're surrounded by so much death right now. And in this context too, and sometimes it's their fellow employees, like people they're close to that they work with who are passing away of it. So I think that, yeah, I think Jen, especially in the healthcare field that this, this is probably coming up in all kinds of different ways. And it might tie back to what you were saying about it being an overwhelming sense as well, just because they, like you said, they're surrounded by death. It's it's everywhere and it's this big, huge thing and it's distressing and overwhelming. And, and that, what did you call it? A burst of energy or a, a uptick of energy or something that, that they have to deal with. Surge, you call it a surge, the surge of energy that um, that they have to deal with. Surge, yeah. I like to think of trauma as that because I I feel like it makes it sound more productive because we can use energy, but it's wishful thinking. We're talking about the hard parts of of grief like this, of course. Right. And so then after COVID-19 and what we are currently as we're recording on, on, this is June 4th right now. So we are still in the thick of of protests and, and things happening here. I think guilt is a huge part. Of, of what's happening right now, people feeling guilty. And, and since there is so much, much violence happening, people wondering, why am I, why was I able to protest peacefully and those other people weren't? Right. Why am I being targeted or why is someone else being targeted and not me? Yeah. I, I was reading some things online about protesters reporting, peaceful protesters reporting, feeling really guilty that their friends were hurt or arrested in, in certain cases and, and they weren't. And it was just merely kind of, you know, I don't want to say luck, but just like the way it worked out. And so I think that when we have these kinds of events happen, that there's so much kind of out of control. And honestly, there's a lot of trauma happening within, within these um, two, not everyone, but to certain people that I think survivor skill is probably popping up right, quite a bit. So we have a lot of reasons, uh, a lot of trauma that happens to people. So there's a, a lot of reasons that people might experience survivor's guilt at some point in their lives, whether it's in relation to the context of what's happening right now or some of those other things that we've, we've talked about, those other experiences. So let's then talk about what we can do about it. If someone is feeling this sense of guilt or they see some of those signs that you discussed, some of those symptoms of survivor's guilt, what should they do? Yeah, so one that I love is, although it's easier said than done, 
accept what you're feeling. And I think what we should remember and kind of reflect on is that guilt is this very stigmatized emotion. You know, a lot of times if we say, and and people don't necessarily mean to stigmatize it or to invalidate it when we express it, but oftentimes, you know, if we express that we feel guilty, people can make us feel, the responses can make us feel like, it's wrong to feel guilty or, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. You, you had no control over that. So it's almost like them, again, not understanding the irrational part of the survivor's guilt and saying, oh, that doesn't make any sense. You, you can't feel that way because it doesn't make any sense when really that's not validating the feeling, right? So we definitely don't want to be doing that to ourselves. So keeping in mind that guilt is not on its own a problem. It's a natural feeling that needs to be acknowledged, accepted, and processed in order for us to heal. And so accepting what you're feeling is really important. So I feel like like guilt in and of itself feels like a situation that needs to be resolved. I know in the guilt and shame literature, when we talk about guilt, guilt is is pro-social. It's actually very helpful in that it invites us to make amends. It thinks about something that we did wrong. And so that if it's something we've done wrong, then it's something that we can change. And so guilt is sort of intrinsically something that we need to resolve. And so that's why maybe we have this sense of stigma with it in that if we are feeling guilty, it means that there's something that we feel like we have to resolve and that we can't. And especially when we're talking about death, it's something that we can never resolve, right? It, it, that's not a thing that we can change. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking about it for me personally is I, I had a very early miscarriage and it, I actually didn't know I was pregnant until I miscarried. And I felt very guilty. Like if only I had paid attention or if only I had, you know, done the right things or whatever, then maybe that wouldn't have happened. But it is this sense of not being able to fix that. You know, it's not something that you can ever go back and change. I guess I don't really have an ending point to that. It just came to mind when you were talking about the sense of acceptance. I want to point something out there. So as a grief researcher, we typically refer to that as actually pregnancy loss because the term miscarriage implies that the woman miscarried and did something wrong. And so I want to acknowledge that by you using that term, it demonstrates survivor's guilt in a way. We may not realize that we're doing, I know you were expressing that. And so I I appreciate your share. And I think a lot of people are going to relate to you sharing that, Michelle. But I also wanted to point out that even like built into some of our language about these things that are so hard to think about and feel and talk about is this stigma of guilt. Yeah. And so I just wanted to, um, to point that out. And you also said that you talked about guilt and shame. And one piece that I noticed that clinicians will recommend if they are treating someone or trying to help someone with survivor's guilt is that they will suggest to try to find, and it's not always possible, but to try to find something to do with your guilt so kind of going along with what I was talking about is this of these traumatic events is this kind of like surge of energy. If we can, even if it feels like bad energy, like that guilt feeling, if we can find a way to direct that somewhere that is healing for us or for others, or may perhaps both, that can be healing in and of itself. And so for example, if we do feel like we've learned something from the experience that we're suffering from survivor's guilt as a consequence of, we can use that 
sometimes in ways that can help others and that make ourselves feel better, at least in knowing that we, you know, regaining kind of control over what's happened to us, finding meaning out of what's happened to us. So for example, if somebody has, you know, suffered from, or perhaps like someone's loved one has died of cancer and they feel a sense of survivor's guilt as a consequence of of losing that person and the way they lost that person, perhaps raising awareness about that type of cancer or perhaps raising awareness about something that was really important to the person that they lost can help them create meaning. And these are, this, isn't, this isn't something someone can prescribe for you. These have to be something that you have to ask yourself, like, what do I feel guilty about? And how can I kind of apply that guilt, even if it's just simply encouraging others to talk about So in the context of like losing a loved one to something like cancer, it's like a prolonged illness. It could be simply encouraging others to talk about end of life decision-making with their family or using any kind of guilt-related experiences they have to help others in some way to get some sort of closure that's difficult to find otherwise. Yeah, I have an example of that actually. So I mentioned that I am a professor at a university and we know that suicide is a leading cause of death for college students. So my campus had an out of the darkness suicide awareness walk and prevention. I was really excited to get a team of students together and raise money for this really important cause. And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, the walk was turned into a virtual walk. So it was still held um, not quite the same, but the idea being it's an important cause. It's something we need to be talking about. It's something that we need to be aware of and doing whatever we can to try to prevent that from happening in the future. So finding that kind of cause and turning that energy into something that might actually benefit someone else can be really helpful. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. And, and I like I like that you brought that up. And I I like how it's in line with what Angie said about how it has to be something that we choose for ourselves. It can't be something that someone else comes along and says, okay, this is what you should do. And I think that can be very difficult for us who are trying to help other people going through it because we want to say, hey, this is what you need to do. But I I think telling other people what they need to do actually can add on and expand their feelings of guilt. Instead, I think we need to help them. I don't know, maybe silently or maybe just by being there and and validating, like Angie said, about validating their emotions. You know, we need to validate that it's okay that they feel this way and then let them come to the point where they're going to accept what they're feeling or choose something to do with their guilt. Yeah. And I think the no, you're not alone point is also really important that we're sharing that, hey, this is something that happens to a lot of people across a range of experiences. So if this is something that resonates with you, that's okay. You're not alone in that. And so finding support through friends, through family, through support groups, whatever it takes, and having those people who will listen to you and say, thank you for sharing and have that be a really meaningful moment and have your feelings validated. I think that's a great thing that can happen from this too. Absolutely. All right. So we have accept what you're feeling, do something with your guilt, but something that is personally motivated. Don't tell other people to do something with their guilt and know you're not alone. Those are three strategies. Do we have other strategies? I also want to point out that in line with this whole idea that, that we sometimes have where it's like black or white, like I, if I'm not guilty, then I didn't really care about my loved one or 
you know, like sometimes like the guilt is like yoked or linked to something. And I think it's important that we remember that our feelings of, so especially in the case where like, let's say an accident where someone survived and their loved one didn't, we can still feel a positive emotion or a sense of relief or the opposite of stress. So feeling relief and appreciation for our own survival or feeling gratitude, even, even if it's not related to the event, just feeling any positive emotion that can coexist with our grief healing. And we know, so, you know, back in, uh, if you, if you've read about grief in a textbook, you've probably read about the stages of grief. And it's not that the stages of grief aren't real or aren't true, but we don't actually subscribe to those as grief researchers anymore, because we know that the more natural form of grief is to oscillate between what uh, Margaret Strobe and others have called loss-oriented coping strategies and restoration-oriented coping strategies and loss-oriented coping strategies are where it's those kind of classic sort of grief practices where you think about the loved one, you mourn the loved one. It's kind of those negative emotions sort of bucketed in that category. And then the restoration-oriented coping strategies are more of like healing, restoring, taking on new roles in your life, kind of integrating the experience of the death into who you are and moving on. And so I, I like to think of it as more of the the positive sort of things. And those can coexist in your grief. You may not feel them at the exact same time, but you're allowed, or perhaps you will actually have those kind of mixed emotions, but you will, it's okay. And it's actually totally normal to sort of oscillate between those. So bounce back and forth between those at any given time. And just know that those can live together in your healing process. And so celebrating your own survival or other things you're grateful for or making meaning out of the tragic event does not in any way diminish your grief for those who did not survive. I really like that emphasis on your ability and propensity to feel more than one thing at a time. We can have very complex emotions and reactions. And I think it's important to, to realize that, that it doesn't have to be if we feel happy that we can't feel sad at the same time. I mean, obviously we can feel more than one thing. So we need to be able to forgive ourselves or to make space for ourselves to be able to experience more than one thing at a time. We talked about that a little bit when we were in previous discussions, when we were talking about celebrating little wins, right? In the face of COVID, that, that just because we are just because we are in the middle of this pandemic and then super heavy things are happening, it doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't celebrate happy things that are happening to us. We can have multiple emotions at the same time. Absolutely. And it's really important for grieving. And the last recommendation I actually had to kind of what we, in terms of what we do about survivor's guilt is to grieve those who died. You know, in some cases, the people who died in this, if, we, if we're thinking about survivor's guilt in the traditional sense, uh, in terms of people who have died in a traumatic event that we were somehow associated with or feel associated with, sometimes are people we knew well, but other times they're not. So like in the cases um, of uh, the case of COVID-19, where we have, you know, where, where was it? It was at the New York Times where they published last week all of the names for the first 100,000. That was the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that was like major survivor's guilt moment for me. And I had to have a moment of grief and just feeling the loss of these people who, even though I didn't know, I collectively somehow feel part of this event because we are all somehow exposed, even if you're not directly exposed to the virus, hopefully 
we're exposed to this, like this time of danger and of, you know, loss. And so it's okay to let ourselves mourn and grieve those who we have lost, even if we survived. And even if that coincides with feelings of survival, survivor's guilt, like the only way on the other side is to actually grieve. Right. Because it's, it's about processing and you can't process until you go through the grief process. And so even though it may seem at odds with survivor's guilt, at least in my head, it kind of seems at odds that you are, are grieving about these things, but also feeling guilty about them. It's, it's processing the same emotion or processing the same trauma. And so the processing is the important part. And sometimes the only way through healing is to experience pain. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you, grieve those who died. And this is maybe tangential, but if the pregnancy loss resonates with any of the listeners, I'll tell you that grieving your loss is really super important. And it's difficult, especially when the loss is early, because there's a whole lot of messages you get from people that it didn't matter, that it wasn't a big deal, Mm -hmm. that you weren't that far along, any of those things. And just ignore all of that because grieving is important to make it through to the other side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, wow. So this was, this was a heavy topic. <laughs> Does anyone have anything, any uh, kind of wrapping up messages that you would like to share with, with the listeners? Anything that you, you feel people should know? I want to say, cause I personally feel like I might need to do this after we end this recording session. Uh, Michelle just used the term heavy. I think that's really spot on. The way guilt at least feels in my body is it's like this heavy, like if you think about those cartoons where like the anvil, like the big iron thing, like falls on somebody's head and switches them. It feels like an anvil in my stomach. And I know that for me, I find movement type therapies like dancing or moving or even like letting out noise. Sounds crazy, but it's not, it's not, it's not Uh, letting out noises or like what that feeling sounds like to you feels like was really helpful. And so guilt is heavy. And if after listening to this, or perhaps just like this, maybe has brought some things up for you, do something that is going to help you shake this, even if it's like a physical shake. So what I probably going to do is we're recording this in the evening. So I'm probably going to go into the other room and like warn my husband, like don't come in for a while and shut the door and just turn some music on and just like move around to just get, because again, remember we were talking about like this energy surge, it's just another form of energy and we have to release it somehow and allow yourself to do that. You don't have to hold on to this we, with guilt, we tend to, to grab onto it because we feel like we're doing something. We feel guilty, but it can feel paralyzing. And that's kind of beside the point. We can't do something with that guilt until we kind of get it unstuck. So I would just encourage people to find a way to find their light on the other side of this discussion, even if that's a physical lightness. So for me, that'll be going off and dancing and moving around after this. <laughs> I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And there is physical movement of our body, this releasing of energy. Our body generally doesn't know the difference between different types of energy. So we have this type of energy. And so if you are stressed or going through trauma or something, that movement does help release those things. So yeah, I would second the movement-based theory. Jen and Chelsea, do you have anything that you'd like to bring to everybody's attention or, or call back to? The whole time I've been listening to this, I just wanted to say how important therapy can be. So if you feel yourself really struggling with something or you just want to talk to somebody, 
highly recommend speaking to somebody and Psychology Today can help you find, it's a website and it can help you find somebody in your area that can specialize in grief therapy to kind of go through this with you. That's a, that's a really good point. And um, I will go ahead and link that in the show notes. So if you go to our website, itcpodcast.com, and you look at the description of this episode, we will link to that Psychology Today site so you can use those, those resources. What about you, Chelsea? Yeah, I was thinking this would be a good place to mention some hotlines. So um, numbers that people can call if they're feeling grief or if they're feeling suicidal or if they're looking for some kind of treatment for complicated bereavement or something like that. So if we could maybe link that in, I found a couple quickly Googling, but I don't know how good they are, but just to have like, this is, this is a hard topic. So I want to make sure that people have some good resources out there of people that they could talk to if this is bringing up some stuff for people. Absolutely. We will put those in the show notes as well. So that'll give you another resource. I think for me, I want to go back to the accept what you are feeling, especially with everything that's happening today that we talked about the situational context that when we're in now and with when we're talking to people about these things and people telling us, oh, don't feel guilty. Don't feel like this. Don't feel like that. Don't let people tell you what you should and shouldn't. Your feelings are what they are and they're valid. And I think it's okay to explore your own feelings and deal with your feelings as they are rather than trying to change them into something else. So I I just want to go back to what Angie said first, the accept what you're feeling. Can I add also... Just find people who validate your feelings also, because sometimes you might be trying to accept what you're feeling, but other people can help you in that journey. So finding people who will say, you know, hey, that's absolutely valid. You're allowed to feel that way. I also wanted to add journaling or expressive writing. So that's an excellent way of making sense out of events that you may not feel that you have control over. So writing about the person that you miss, writing about the guilt that you feel really kind of getting at why you feel that way and maybe what might make you feel better. So telling yourself that consistent, coherent story has been linked to a whole host of health and well-being benefits um, in the literature. So that's an easy, quick thing that you can do at home that might be difficult as it brings up some emotions, but generally leads to better processing and coping with things like traumatic events. I just want to jump in and say that you can also write about the event itself and you can write about it multiple days, like three to four days back to back or spread out over a week or two, whatever you feel comfortable with. And it is normal to feel worse after you, you write, but then you'll feel better later. Yes, that, yes, that absolutely. Also, while you're writing, you can write to yourself as if you are writing to a friend. I I feel like we've talked about this, but I might be thinking of something else, but you can write advice to yourself as if you're advising a a close friend. Talk to yourself as you would talk to them. Oh, um, self-compassion. That's how we discuss this. Talking to yourself as if you you are your own friend. That in part of your expressive writing, that's another thing that you can do. You can validate feelings for yourself. So yeah, expressive writing has been journaling has been shown in research to be very effective for this. 
Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, all of you, Angie, Jen, and Chelsea for being here. And um, thank you listeners for joining us today. Our podcast is edited by Travis Woodley and produced by Travis and myself. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, or if you want to check out our supporting materials, you can find us at our website, www.itcpodcast.com. You can also look at Inside the Chrysalis podcast on Facebook or at Inside the Chrysalis on Instagram. Please leave us a rating on your podcast app and uh, recommend us to your friends if you liked the episode. I'd really love to to grow our subscribers. And um, we'd also love to chat with you on any of those platforms. Just so you know, all of the views that we expressed on this podcast today are ours alone and are not representative of our respective organizations. So essentially, if you don't like something we said, we have to take the heat all by ourselves instead of our organizations. In addition to that, we are researchers, not counselors. So please don't take our advice in any kind of diagnostic capacity. Uh, so if you really enjoyed the content want access to more, visit our Inside the Chrysalis page on Patreon. Become one of our supporters to help cover production costs. Until then, see everybody next time.